point. So let's give it up for the gospel ensemble again. <laughs> so this morning I'll be reading a variety of passages all from Proverbs. It's a compilation um, that is to help us think about wisdom and our speech. Um, so there will be references behind me, but there's not a page to follow along. So I'll read them all now, and we'll listen, and then we'll hear the message. A fool's mouth is his undoing, and his lips are a snare to his soul. Do you see a man who speaks in haste? There is more hope for a fool than for him. He who answers before listening, that is his folly and his shame. It is a trap for a man to dedicate something rashly, and only later to consider his vows. A fortune made by a lying tongue is a fleeting vapor and a deadly snare. A false witness will not go unpunished, and whoever pours out lies will perish. Like a madman shooting firebrands or deadly arrows is a man who deceives his neighbor and says, I was only joking. Like one who seizes a dog by the ears is a passerby who meddles in a quarrel not his own. A fool's lips bring him strife, and his mouth invites a beating. Stone is, a heavy, and stone is heavy and sand a burden, but provocation by a fool is heavier than both. Like cutting off one's feet or drinking violence is the sending of a message by the hand of a fool. Like a lame man's legs that hang limp is a proverb in the mouth of a fool. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you will be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his folly, or he will be wise in his own eyes. Those who guard their lips preserve their lives, but those who speak rashly will come to ruin. From the mouth of the righteous comes the fruit of wisdom, but a perverse tongue will be silenced. The lips of the righteous nourish many, but fools die for lack of judgment. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. The words of the wicked lie in wait for blood, but the speech of the upright rescues them. Reckless words pierce like a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. A fool's talk brings a rod to his back, but the lips of the wise protect them. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Gracious words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. Kings take pleasure in honest lips. They value a man who speaks the truth. Through patience, a ruler can be persuaded, and a gentle tongue can break a bone. The wise in heart are called discerning, and gracious words promote instruction. A word aptly spoken is like apples of gold in settings of silver. Like an earring of gold or an ornament of fine gold is a wise man's rebuke to a listening ear. The one who has knowledge uses words with restraint, and whoever has understanding is even-tempered. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. The Lord detests lying lips, but he delights in men who are truthful. Thank you. These are the word of the Lord written for his people. Good morning. There are a couple of records set in American life in the, the presidential elections coming up. One is, is that there's a female um, nominee from one of the major parties. The other is that the two candidates are the most hated human beings ever to run against each other for any office. Right? And the th one of the th reasons for that is because of what they do with their mouths. Whether it's telling lies or whether it is being utterly insensitive and brash in the way one speaks. And one of the things that struck me as I read through the book of Proverbs uh, to get ready for this series, this was the only sermon that I had not planned on as being one of the themes. But as I reread the book of Proverbs, it was absolutely undeniable this is one of the absolutely central and most important themes of the whole book of Proverbs, and therefore all human wisdom and right understanding and right living and right thinking and right virtue. 
It's how we talk, how we listen, how we express ourselves, how we use words. What you do with the largest hole on your head is one of the most definitive things about you and will define how you'll be remembered by other humans. Think about it for a second. We already know this. Can you make anybody in a normal attitude feel horrible in just a couple of sentences? Can you make almost anybody in a normal attitude feel great in just a few words? Right? Have you ever had your life, have you ever said something that directed somebody's life? It's something you said just a couple of sentences, and they just like went a totally different direction in their lives by what you said. Sometimes just a little thing you said, or have you ever had your life go in a totally different direction because it's just a phrase that came out of somebody's mouth? I had a physics teacher who asked me what I wanted to be when I grow up, right? Some of you have heard the story before. And I said, I think I want to be a police officer. This is me in 11th grade. And he said, what kind? And I said, I think a state trooper. And he said, why not the FBI? And it just, those four words completely changed the trajectory of my life. Completely changed the trajectory. Just four words. Or um, why do some people hate, really dislike the idea of free speech? Right? On both sides of the political aisle. They just, they say they kind of are for it, but they kind of wish other people would be shut up. And it's, why? Because we know that people listen to people. When people who are ignorant or mean or bigoted or ill-informed talk, people listen to them. Whether or not what they say is just, true, right, balanced, temperate, prudent, Or why is it when I go to Einstein's Bagels, do they take my name when I order, and they think that I have forgotten that they did so because I walked 20 feet to the cash register so that they can intentionally use my name while I'm checking out? Because they know, like every other human being, I adore the sound, just the intonement (laughs) of my own name. I just want to hear that word. Words are incredibly transformative, incredibly moving, incredibly important, way, way, way more than we would dare dream. Little throwaway lines, little bits that we say, things we say in anger or frustration, little bits of gossip that slip out because we want to be cool. All of them bear so much more weight in reality than we um, dare hope or than we fear. So you could sum up what Proverbs teaches about this in this way. Jesus gives life through mouths of honorable expression. Now there's a lot of negative things in this summing up, but if you were to wrap this around, I think Christianly, what we're to take from the book of Proverbs and the rest of the Bible in terms of how we speak, which of course could be a 27 sermon series, and someday will hopefully be one, but not that long. Um, It would be this, that Jesus gives life through mouths of honorable expression. Because your speech is something like a superpower, and therefore how you use that power defines you. Because your speech because human expression is as consequential as it is. It is disproportionate in the fact that it defines you. You might be like, well, there's a lot of things about me. A lot of things about me. Why would this define me? Because, because speech is so powerful. How you express yourself, what you say, is so powerful to other people that it is like a superpower. And everybody understands that how a superhero uses his superpower is what defines him. Not whether or not he likes, you know, Jakartan roast versus Guatemalan. It is the most consequential thing and therefore the most defining thing. And Jesus gives life through those who use that power for honorable expression. 
So let's look, we're going to look at three parts this morning. One is um, understanding the vices of foolish and wicked speech, which is all through the book of Proverbs. And it would be wrong for me not to focus on that because there's a lot said about it. Secondly, the learning the virtues of wise and honorable speech. And third, connecting both of these to Jesus so that we don't get a moralistic sermon about being good talkers, okay? So the first is that we need to know perverse speech for what it is. We need to know perverse speech for what it is. The reason why this is important is, is that if you don't actually learn what the vices of human life are, you won't really reckon, you won't be keen enough of thought, you won't have a clear enough perception and discernment to go, oh, that's that. And you will be at the mercy of vices, and you will be yourself a fountain of them. And so you have to actually go through the process of studying the negative and the positive, and to see them in relief from one another. Um, one way to, to sum up all of the things related to speech is this concept of that it's perverse. So it says in Proverbs 8, 12 and 13, I, wisdom, dwell together with prudence, and I possess knowledge and discretion. To fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior, and perverse speech. So this is Lady Wisdom speaking at the end of a nine-chapter summary of the greatness of wisdom, and she says, with me is prudence and discretion, both in action, in belief, and speech, and that the Lord hates evil, which includes pride and arrogance and evil behavior, and guess what makes the list? Perverse speech. Now, we don't like to use the word perversity, perverted, pervert, or perverse, um, for a few reasons, and one of them is cultural, um, because for a while, people, and the, and the church did this as much as anybody, we used perverse as a monster word, that if something was perverse, or if you were being a pervert, what that meant was you had left the normal scale of humanity. So within these bookends is being a human, and outside of these, you're a monster, and pervert denoted that you were on the outside of this line. And so we used it as an attack word for people that were, we thought were worse than us, which is not what the word means. The word comes, the, the, the word comes from uh, an old French word, per means thoroughly or completely, and verse means turned. Or twisted in some context, but mainly turned. That is, so perverse means to be thoroughly turned. And it presumes the predicate of the straight or right way. So when something is perverse or perverted, or when someone is being a pervert, that doesn't mean they're worse than you think you are, or that I think I am. Something is perverse when it is twisted or turned thoroughly from the right way. Right? The, the meaning of the biblical words translated perverse have this idea of crooked, torturous means twisted all around like you're torturing something. So in Psalm 1826, it says, with the purified, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. Meaning this, everybody values something and God shows himself better than us. And so to people who are pure of heart, they want to be godly and honorable. God shows his honorable capacities and realities and, and properties and actions, and we see those and we value them. We go, that's beautiful, and we take enjoyment in God for his greatness. But people who are crooked, they, they, they value that. They value shrewdness, right? So think, um, think Zootopia here. Right? It's called a hustle, sweetheart. Right? God is the fox to the lamb at the end of the movie, right? Like, it, yeah, you want to be crooked with God? You want to hustle God? Here's what happens at the end of that movie, which is your life. He ends up saying, it's called a hustle, sweetheart. And you go, oh. And you, no matter how crooked you are, you can't help but appreciate the smooth subtlety that he was always one step ahead of you. And so, 
It assumes, the idea of perversity assumes a crookedness and a bentness from what was straight. But what does straight mean? That's a, that's a, that's a distance metaphor. That's a directional metaphor. How does that apply morally? And you see, in the Bible, that concept of straightness is all, always wrapped up in purpose. It's always wrapped up in purpose. That there is a divine and created purpose given to all of us, and we are situated in the fabric of reality. And those two things are the same. That is, how we function in reality and our divine God-given purpose work together. That's why a wisdom book can be in a theological volume. Because how reality functions, wisdom, rightly fits because it is the laws of, or workings of creation given by the Creator. So our divine purpose and how we function rightly in the fabric of reality, that it, which is given by the Creator and how we function in the creation, is the straightness that we are meant to walk in. It's our purpose, and when that is twisted, tortured, spun, and changed, that is what perverse, perversion, or perverted means. Which means, who in this room does the word pervert apply to justly? Everyone. Many, 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 many times over. At least we have something in common. Now, I know that that bothers people sometimes, um, but actually, part of the importance of this is for us to become sensible of reality. One of the reasons we have to study the vices of perversity, especially in speech, is because if you don't, you will never be sensible of the thing. Um, one of the things that I often do when I talk with young men about pornography is I'll, I'll say, they'll be like, yeah, it's a real struggle for me. And I'm like, it's a struggle. That's what we're going to call it. That's a nice little euphemism. Have you, ev have you ever thought of yourself as a pervert when you, like, use the pornography? Well, even use is a, is a euphemism. When you, like, gorge yourself with the perversity of the misuse of women, yourself, everyone's sexuality, all of the technologies utilized, everything is all being perverted in every way, every way possible. Have you ever considered thinking of yourself as a pervert in order to morally motivate yourself that you don't want to be one? And without exception, I think, I don't think anyone has ever said, that's a great idea immediately. They've always gone. And then five minutes later, they've come around to like, you know, that might actually be helpful. The classification of vice for what it is is actually important in the process of understanding vice itself. One of the problems we have culturally is we tend to hide perversity in euphemism. So we come up with little statements that redefine things so that we don't have to call things what they are. Now, listen, I'm not saying euphemisms are bad. Euphemisms are good when they support a healthy modesty or they save somebody from undeserved embarrassment, right? So we say things like, um, if somebody was in jail for a little while, we say that they were, in a, they, they, they were subject to correctional action. If someone died, we say they passed away. When we don't want to explain to our kids what we're drinking, we say it's an adult beverage. If somebody is unemployed, they sometimes say they're, well, I'm between jobs. If someone has to defecate, they'll say they're going number two or powdering their nose, right? Short people are vertically challenged. Chubby people are gravitationally underrepresented. And— so on. We pass gas. We have a bun in the oven. We are a domestic engineer. We are—we suffer from gravitational disparity. We're ha gonna have to let you go. We have temporary negative cash flow, and we're using—these are just enha enhanced interrogation methods we're using on you. That one actually isn't a helpful one. It didn't get edited the right line. But however, 
So there are good euphemisms that are designed to promote modesty. Modesty is actually a virtue. And, and euphemisms that promote modesty are therefore beneficial and good and intergenerationally honorable. Because all the generations don't talk the same way about different things, and there are ways you shouldn't talk in front of kids. And so euphemisms are actually very useful, but, but what we tend to do is we tend to pervert good things. And we tend to use cowardly and dishonest euphemisms in order to conceal the truth so we don't have to deal with the perversity of the things that we face. And it is not just a moral issue, it becomes a mental one. That is one of the most important things about cowardly and dishonest euphemism, is that it is not just an immoral sidestepping of the actual real implications of something. It is actually humanly confusing, and it takes away our ability to think clearly. And if you can't have wisdom, right knowledge, then you can't apply that right knowledge with discipline and have true virtue. And so spying on someone is eavesdropping, and charging a fee that people didn't expect is a surcharge, and prostitution is somehow a trick, and being a liar is being thrifty with the truth, and fornication is sleeping together, and adultery is having an affair. Sounds like a vacation. A prison camp is a relocation center. Genocide is ethnic cleansing. Somehow we're all—it's hygienic, right? Death of innocent people is collateral damage. Killing an unborn baby is abortion, or still later, terminating a pregnancy. Because abortion isn't obfuscational enough. And free lust that costs people everything is called free love. Chesterton said, you could imagine Fagin and Oliver Twist explaining to the kids that they weren't pickpockets, but they were engaging in pocket content reappropriation. In Greek mythology, in one of the earliest epics, the Furies of Hell are called the Eumenides, which means the kindly or benevolent ones. These are the ones that come and torture you if you do something wrong. Um, this is a paraphrase of G.K. Chesterton by a guy writing a book about him. He said, um, the modern world's weakness for euphemism, that is, their weakness in their desire for them, is evidence of mental breakdown even more than of moral breakdown. It's a very important phrase. It is evidence of mental breakdown even more than of moral breakdown. When we use our language not to express the truth, but to hide the truth, we are not just being dishonest. We are losing our abilities to think clearly. One of the reasons why we have to see and know what the vices of speech are and we have to call them what they are, is so we can understand their identification, so we can think clearly about them, and we can understand them in a fuller gravity. So, what are they? This is going to be an incomplete list. But these are just some of the ones that come up in Proverbs. And the reason why I share this with you is because I think most Christians think that if you lie when you don't really have to, and if you like really blow up and scream at somebody and demean them, and maybe if you gossip really perniciously over a long period of time, you're, you're perverting the right use of your mouth. But actually, wisdom is much broader than that, as Proverbs shows us. So one is maligning somebody with gossip. That is, engaging in false testimony against your neighbor. It's part of the Ten Commandments. It is utterly damnable. Right? Intemperance, that is, giving vent to your anger without restraint and saying what you want. That doesn't just include screaming at people. It includes using cutting words, using unnecessary or unhelpful sarcasm, and mocking people. Rash vows or lying, that includes um, promising or saying you're going to do something that you're not going to do or that you aren't going to do and make yourself do. And then in the New Testament, Jesus just said, let, let your yes be yes and your no be no. You, you don't have to take a vow. If you say you're going to do something, you're going to do it. And if you're not going to do it, you should tell people you're not going to do it. 
That is the right use of the tongue. Flattery, right? Encouraging other people so they will like you more. If any word that you say that is positive towards someone else, the real motivation is your own advancement in any way, then you are engaging in flattery. Or boastfulness, that is flattering yourself in the presence of others. Which used to be a lot more looked down upon than it seems to be these days. Proverbs says, let someone else praise you. Right? Teaching and advertising folly. That is, somebody says something idiotic and you go, yeah, that's right. Or affirming or reteaching or repeating. Just because you heard something somewhere that may or may not be true doesn't mean that you are without responsibility if you continue to repeat it. The whole section in James chapter 3 in the New Testament that talks about how the tongue can't be tamed, you know a verse that comes right after? Chapter 3 verse 1 says, Not many of you should endeavor to be teachers, my brothers, because those who teach will be judged at a higher standard. And then it goes on to say, no one can tame the tongue. So why shouldn't you teach? Is it because you have to study so hard and you have to learn and go to college and any of that? No, it's because when you talk for 50 minutes, you say idiotic things. And if you aren't really careful, you really end up hurting people because you use your mouth a lot. And the mouth is incredibly powerful, and so it has the capacity to be incredibly destructive. And if you don't tame the tongue, you're just going to hurt everyone. And so, don't promote yourself to be a teacher. And that doesn't mean don't teach in the church or teach Christian faith unless you have a seminary degree. That's not what it means. It means grow in the virtue and identify and flee the vices of perverse speech and grow in virtuous speech, and then you'll be ready to teach. Has nothing to do with your mastery of content, actually. Or being quarrelsome, that is to create drama. Anytime you create drama, it is perversity. That is, you start it, you affirm it, you stir it back up, whether it's through gossip or any other means. When you are lifting drama, when you're help, helping to stir it, create it, and I know it feels exciting, and I know you think your life is boring, but you, the, the only solution to that is to do something more worthwhile or embrace the repetitive things that have divine purpose in your life, not create drama and ruin everybody else's life because you want to feel like something important is happening because you're talking. Right? Number seven, reckless words. It says they pierce like a sword. Just a word that just comes out of your mouth that you're not thinking about. You're not thinking about what it's going to do. You're not thinking about how it's going to affect another person. There's this rule if you take hunter safety where it doesn't matter if you see the biggest critter you've ever wanted to shoot in your life. You have to look behind it and make sure there isn't a kid playing with a garbage can behind you, behind the animal. I don't know why there's a garbage can in this metaphor, okay? Like you, you need to, you're, you are responsible not just for your shot and the animal, but what's behind it and what's between you and it. In that sense, your mouth is like a gun. You have to take a certain amount of responsibility, not just for your line of sight and what you're shooting at, but of the, the ricochet and the flying around and the overshot and if you miss and all of that. That doesn't mean you can control all of that, but a wise person considers all of that. And a fool doesn't. Slander or slur to attack somebody in front of others especially don't correct people in front of other people, even if you think it's loving. Talk to them by themselves. The Bible says do that first, one-on-one -on -one first. And if they don't listen, and it's really going to hurt them, then go find another person that they know cares about them, and go two to one. And then maybe they'll listen. The minute you talk to somebody in front of other people, their pride flares up, and the whole thing conflagrates. Catches on fire, sorry. 
gloating or contempt. It's, you sh- Christian athletes winning an argument, getting the contract, getting the promotion, being right about anything, gloating is not virtuous in any sense. It is foolish, and nobody enjoys it but you, and you're harming yourself in doing it. Let your actions speak for themselves. If you spike the ball in somebody's face, they already know what you did. And restraint in victory is a mark of virtue. Right? Butting in, right, do you remember, you remember the, this is the fight scene in the Land of the Witch in the Wardrobe, where the, the other kids are concerned that Lucy, this girl, thinks that there's like a world inside a wardrobe, and they're like, she thinks this and blah, blah, blah. And, and, and the, the professor's like, you could try something that would be very interesting. And they're like, what? He's like, you could try minding your own business. It's amazing the busybodiness that we're drawn into, especially when we're taking joy in gossiping and in creating drama, which then leads to us butting into things. And <laughs> what the proverb says is, like one who seizes a dog by the ears is a passerby who meddles in a quarrel that isn't his own. Lying and deceit or promising without following up. Betrayal of a confidence. When somebody told you something and they think that you're not going to spread it around. False accusation. Grumbling and ingratitude. Complaining. Grumbling and being ungrateful, especially to God and, a, and your parents, are the things that are mentioned over and over and over again. And in fact, grumbling against cursing your parents in Proverbs is mentioned more than grumbling against God. Now, there are more people to be grateful towards and not to complain about, but the people who categorically deserve your gratitude are your parents. Even if they were relatively bad. All parents are bad parents by some relative measure, and some are much worse than others, but all gave you life, clothed you, fed you, took care of you, etc. And therefore, all of them you owe your life to, and therefore, you owe them a debt of gratitude forever. And somebody who is wise of mouth realizes this. Thank you, Mom. Spreading gloom. It is your job to be happy. It is your job. Part of virtue is being cheerful. And it is your job to spread cheer. It is, it is, it is our responsibility to make it easier for other people to be happy and enjoy their lives. And when we are gloomy and we spread gloom and we're gloom mongers, it is an unvirtuous use of our speech and influence, tongue and mouth. And heartful joking is just another—I mean, and this is, of course, an incomplete list. But one of the things that we have to do if we're going to—if we're going to understand what it means to, to see perversion— of mouth and tongue for what it is, we have to see the stuff we have to say. I know what that is. And you recognize it when, before it escapes, before it is part of an exhalation into the world, before it's released, before the bullet leaves the barrel, preferably before the trigger is pulled, you have to realize, and you can only realize it if you know with crystal clarity what the vices of tongue and mouth are. You have to know them with crystal clarity, and you have to not use euphemisms, and you have to see them exactly for what they are, and you have to be able to label them in your mind and say, this is this, and that is that, and I have to flee this, and I'm not going to do that, and that is a euphemism for something that is terrible. I'm just speaking my mind. Oh, I know what that is. That is a euphemism for I'm not responsible for where these bullets fly because I feel like I should shoot them. You see, you can't let the euphemisms in your own heart. This is, it's fine. This is authentic. You're yelling at that person is authentic, right? One of the things we have to do is, is reject this idea of expressionism. That, because think about it. What is all of your speech? It's expression. 
You see, if you believe morally in expressivism, that like what you're morally obligated to do is express yourself, then whatever is in you is just going to pour out. And you have to just reject that idea entirely and believe that what you're meant to express is virtue, that is truth graciously spoken to be life-giving to others, even when it's correction. And it's only when we master knowledge of what the vices and virtues are, we use no euphemisms, we see them for what they are in their proper proportion with their gravity, we realize the effect of our speech, that it is a superpower that is enormously impacting everyone around us, that we can say, I'm not going to say that. Second application for this is um, start with the speck in your own eye, not the plank in your brother's eye. Uh, that was a list of 17 things. You know, I'm good at like four of them, and I think I'm virtuous with my mouth and tongue. That would not be Proverbs, and therefore God's perspective about me and my mouth and my tongue. Broaden out our ambition. Third, when people do those things, just don't go along with them. Right? Somebody gossips to you, just say, hey, I don't don't feel comfortable with this conversation. Or, and if they get offended, just say, Sarah, Sarah, listen, I'm sorry I just just offended you. That was the effect of what I said. But listen, if I don't listen to you when you say those things about Jan, I want you to understand I would never listen if somebody said those things about you. That your reputation is always safe with me. But if I have integrity, that has to be true for everybody else's. Even though I know she made you really angry. Which is number four. Trying to find a winsome way to encourage people to see the vices of mouth and tongue for what they are, even if they're not Christians. Because if you believe that the Creator has put into the creation, the fabric of reality, certain rules of reality, wisdom can be recognized by anyone. And if you can explain something on the basis of wisdom, anybody with any assumptions or presumptions about reality can see and savor what those are, and that might lead them from an understanding of creation, that creation is different than they thought, to maybe that their views of the Creator is different than they thought. Let's go on to the second one, which is the opposite, right? We have to learn the virtues of wise speech. I want to go through this one a little faster because I want to have room for the, the last point. And that is, our speech is of, is, is of a great power for good. It's extraordinarily powerful. And wisdom is knowing the purpose. It's knowing and understanding the purpose of our speech but virtue is living in line with that understanding. Wisdom is the first step, and then wisdom put together with discipline, executed in life, is virtue, which is the goal of wisdom. Now, when we look at the opposite list, now this is, of course, a very limited list just in the book of Proverbs. And if you want to master these, you can email us and we'll send you these lists um, at the office, but they're also spread all through the book of Proverbs, as well as everything else about wisdom. And so if part of your spiritual discipline is reading a chapter of Proverbs each, each day or reading a few on the weekend or something like that, if you build these into your life, you will be constantly recycling these truths and you can only digest one or two at a time. You know what I mean? So peacemaking, covering over offense and promoting love, including not keeping, bringing something up. Healing, that is speaking words that heal or help people. Nobility, that is not just not approving of what's wrong, but approving of what's good and saying, that's good, that's right, that's honorable. I'm for that. I think that's true, right? Wise rebuke, that is a truthful and wise correction to a receptive person for their good. Right? The Bible says in a number of places, just because you have a really great correction for somebody doesn't mean that you should take the shot. You should always ask the question, is this person willing to receive this? Or is this person going to attack me for it? And so on. It's not cowardice to see folly bound up in the heart of somebody and willful evil and know that if you share something with with them for their good, they're just going to take it as a personal attack and try to kill you. Proverbs explicitly says that when you see a fool, you shouldn't correct them. Except for to 
I won't get into the whole answer fool according to his folly and that whole bit. There is a way that you are supposed to be able to humiliatingly answer a fool. To shock them out of the preconceptions of their folly. That's a more advanced skill of wisdom and virtue. But the first step is to say, I, I feel like a correction can be offered. Is this person willing and open? And if they are, how do I say it in a way that's life-giving and helpful? There's three parts to that, not just one. Faithfully carrying an, out another's message, being powerfully gentle, learning how being gentle with somebody has enormous power because of what it conveys. Being grateful, cheerful, and humorous can the opposite of, of professing gloom. That par- being funny in a helpful way that isn't at the expense of someone is a virtue. Because it, it spreads enjoyment without creating a cost. And so developing your sense of humor in ways that are not cuttingly sarcastic and not demeaning and not tearing down of other people and at other people's expenses so that enjoyment can be created at the cost of no one through human creativity is a virtue. It's it's hard to be funny in a way that isn't perverse. But it's funny. And it's great. Prudence and listening and knowing when to speak and when to keep your mouth shut. Restraint when you do have to say something and not saying too much and giving vent to your anger. Temperance, not allowing yourself to flare up and engage, become defensive, argumentative, and quarrelsome. And being intimate or having discretion. Having an intimate relationship with somebody is partly knowing that they're not going to betray your confidence. In our day and age, that actually may be more intimate than the first thing that jumps to people's minds when I say intimate. I, I can't tell you how many times I've had conversations with kids and embarrassingly how many times I've had conversations with other adults as to what I would pick for a superpower if I got— have you had this conversation? With I mean, you might have to be young enough to be irresponsible to have this conversation. But I've had this conversation with a lot of people, like, if you could have a superpower, what would your superpower be? And, you know, I've said different things at different times, and we've had arguments about what the right one is, and if you get one, do you get others, and all this kind of thing. Here's the thing. You've had one all along. You've always had a superpower since the day you were born. You've always had a superpower. You have one right now. You can literally bend the world. You have the capacity to bend the world. That's what the Bible says over and over again. And you can pervert it and bend it for evil, or you can give life, and you can speak wisely, and you can show restraint, and you can bring life and give life and care for life and create enjoyment, and you can, you can, you can fix things, and you can grow things. See, you may have had conversations about what superpower you have. You've always had a superpower, and while you were talking about your superpower, have you been being a villain or a hero? Because this, this is the problem, is that I've had plenty of conversations about what superpower I would have. I've always had one, and half the time I've been a villain. And everybody who has any inkling for nobility, any desire to live beautifully, has to, desi- has to want to be a hero with their superpower. Because the problem with superpowers is you can't go back, you can't not have it. You must bear the weight and responsibility of possessing, in some ways, the very power of God that you, when you speak, it has power and effect. Which leads us to how this relates to Jesus which is this. Jesus, the Word, gave his life to make our words life-giving. One of the reasons Jesus, the Word, gave his life was to make our words life-giving. I want you to think about that for a second. One of the effects of salvation, if we fully embody it and embrace it, if we follow Jesus and accept our union with Christ, 
One of the effects or outcomes of Jesus the Word giving his life was so that our words would give life. That's his desire. That's his hope. That was his purpose in creation. And that is out, meant to be our effect in the created order. In one of the first ways Jesus' death and resurrection does this is to make us sensible of our speech and how important it is and why it matters and how big a thing it is. And so it has the gravity it's meant to have. So in the book of Romans, Paul is preaching through and he talks about non-Jewish people and he talks about that, um, that we make idols out of all kinds of things in creation and that we're condemned in our own unrighteousness. And then he talks about Jews and he says, um, we Jews make idols about everything in the religious teachings and the law and are condemned by that. And so we're both idol factories. And then he gets to chapter three and he's about to talk about what Jesus has done. And he says, so therefore we are all equally condemned. And he then quotes a bunch of Old Testament passages that shows the ubiquity, how every human being is like this, how we're all the same in this sense. And when you read it, three-quarters or four-fifths of it is about our mouths. He says, all have turned away and all have become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And then he goes to prove that from the Old Testament. He's already quoted three or four Old Testament passages just to say that bit. But he goes on and he says, their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. You see that? You can go, you go back and read that passage. There's another couple of verses. But the, the, a significant supermajority of how he expresses how apparent our wickedness is and how, how bad it is, is he's saying, just listen to how people talk. That's all you got to do. Just sit there and listen to people talk. And you will see how self-condemned every human being is before God. Now think about that. God doesn't need any video to condemn us. All he needs is tape. In the, in the book of James, James says, of all the things in the world, like we can, we can tame giraffes and lions and we can sail across oceans, but the thing that is so wild in every person is their mouth. Right? And he says it's that, that same mouth that we were given, the tongue we use to praise our Lord and Father, we, with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. He, he, he's implying that we have a purpose, and that is to praise God and to love others. And instead, we use it to curse because our tongues are wild. And Jesus, Jesus pushed this a step further. And he said, here's why this is true about people's mouths. It's because out of the overflow of their hearts, they speak. Because speaking is so immediate. It's so quick. And the movement from thought to speech is so fast that it's so hard to put a filter in there and to hide What's in you? And as you grow in wisdom, you will see this. You will see, and it's one of the reasons why, um, ladies, your dads dislike your boyfriends immediately. And it's not because they automatically hate them, which they do, and they should. But in, a, in addition to that, they know in one paragraph what that boy is all about, or what that young man is all about. Because they have learned over long experience what words reveal, how they're said, the tone in which they're said, the sentence structure, the vocabulary used, the intonation, the increasing and decreasing, the passion by which it's said, the body language which is used, the eye contact that is observed. Every, it says everything about you. To any wise person, you are revealed in a moment when you open your mouth. That's why there's a proverb that says, a fool is revealed at once when he speaks. But even a fool could be thought silent if he shuts his mouth. She could be thought wise if he shuts his mouth. Right? If you're an unmitigated fool and a personal disaster, you could be thought a sage if you just keep your mouth shut. Nobody can tell. Nobody knows. But the minute you open your mouth, everything is revealed to anyone who's wise. Why? 
Because the connection between the heart and the mouth is so fast. And the fact that our mouths condemn us, they condemn us not just because of the blameworthiness of what we say, they condemn us because they are a mirror of our hearts. And the reason no one tames the tongue is because no one tames the heart. It's because nobody faces the perversity of human sin inside of them. Not in any significant amount, Jesus said, the way to destruction is wide and the way to life is narrow. And you see, this is why the death and resurrection of Jesus, that is, the death of the Word who gives life, means everything when it comes to our mouths, when it comes to our speech, and when it comes to our life. When you look at the narratives of the death of Jesus, do you know what they're full of? Sins of the mouth. They're full of them from beginning to end. Everything possible, even in the most general sense that everybody walked by him, just decided they'd just flick an insult at him just for fun while he was dying. People who had no idea what was going on, knew nothing about him, just knew he was being crucified, and people who are being crucified can't do anything to you. They can't punch you in the mouth when you say whatever you want. And so why not just mock somebody who's dying? And so passers-by just said ridiculous things to him. But if you go through the whole passion narrative, there are, you will find lies and venom and hatred and legalism and offensive language and taunting and mocking and false testimony and quarrelsomeness and rashness and boasting and flattery and ingratitude and gloating and contempt and backbiting and just insults for fun as people walked by. And yet, do you remember what Jesus said? He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Paul said in 1 Timothy, he said, um, I was the worst sinner, the worst sinner. He said, but I actually was shown mercy. He doesn't say I was shown mercy just because God is generous. That's not what he says. Now, it's true, but it's not what he says. What he says in 1 Timothy is, I was shown mercy because I was ignorant. I was ignorant. You see, he believed when he mocked, hated, persecuted, and taught against the church. He believed that was true. He believed that. And he believed that because of it, God had mercy on him and showed him the truth. So he could be saved. And you see, there's some of us, you have lived your whole life up until this point profoundly ignorant of the power of what you say how powerful it is, how it can change a life, destroy a life, lift a life, release somebody from bondage, bring physical healing through God's divine power, speak words that encouragement that somebody needs to try something they wouldn't have tried, to find a success they would have never attempted, to be motivated to do the work that's right in front of them, to feel appreciated, to experience enjoyment. All of these things are bound up within the superpower of your capacity for speech that is given to you by the image of the speaking God who reveals himself, who gives freely, who brings life, who purchases redemption, who speaks and shows himself in truth and graciousness to everyone, even the ignorant, to the one who's, who's, who is crucified there when everybody heaps every sin of tongue and mouth upon him. And he says, Father, forgive them. There is some extent to which, so they know they're being wicked, there is some extent to which they do not know the extent. They don't really understand the gravity of what they're doing. And on that basis, on the basis of your own forgiving graciousness, forgive them for what they're doing. That's his attitude towards us. And so the, the good news is, is that as we rightly feel the weight and the gravity of what we've done with our mouths come upon us, and we sh you should, we should, there should be tears on our face at this moment. If I could just be articulate enough to somehow, through the Spirit, touch your heart, we would be awash in water. There would be rivulets filling the bottom altar as it ran down with the coffee. And we would be crushed under the weight of it 
and what we've said and how we've said it, throwaway lines from our youth. And yet, we would be able to hear the freeing words of Jesus when he says, Father, forgive them. They, they don't even know what they're doing. They're so ignorant about the power of their mouth and the meaning of the words they say and the effects that they have on people. And those narratives demonstrate so plainly that Jesus died for you, the slanderer. Every moment you've slandered another person, you've, you've misspoken about them. He, he died for that. The gossip, the liar, the bigot, the scoffer, the mocker, the evil approver, the quarrelsome, the ungrateful complainer, the grumbler, the false accuser, the hurtful joker, the spreader of gloom, the pessimist, the negative, the drama creator, the boaster, the exhibitionist talker, the venting attacker. Every open-throated grave, every mouth that was a viper, Jesus gathered before him on the cross itself and died in front of them, for them, saying, you don't even know what you're saying. You don't even know what you're saying. You were created to bring life. The death of the word, his life given for you, was given for you partly that your words would bring life. And because in his death, you can receive God's justification. One of the gifts of that, if you receive Christ, is union with Jesus. The presence of Christ in the Holy Spirit that puts you in union with the speaking and showing God who speaks words of life and who will guide you in how to speak words of life. And you will walk out with divine power to bring life everywhere. And you, you may think, Nick, Nick, life's not that easy. It is when you have a superpower. When you have a divine superpower, it is easy. You can push a train over. And you just don't realize that God has given you a superpower. Your words do everything. Our lives and our well-being, our hopes and our fears, rise and fall on the words we hear and that are spoken over us and to us and come from us. They empower strength. They create courage. They smother in gloom. They bring out creative potential. And they point people to the God who speaks and a universe comes into being. Who speaks and the Son of God is raised from the dead. who speaks in the blind sea and the deaf are healed, and who speaks a word of reconciliation so you could believe and be forgiven, and who speaks an invitation, and who speaks the truth, and who speaks about virtue, and who speaks and shows himself in the written scriptures, and then calls you in union with him to speak in a way who, that, so that your words give life because the Son of God, the Word, gave his life so that your words would give life. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, I, I, gosh, I wish every week that I could preach better and that I could display your truth in a way that was more winsome and more encouraging and more helpful. But I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would convict hearts at this moment and that, there were, that, that we would be a people, wherever we start, that we would fling the doors wide open to you in these things. If we've never opened the door to you, we don't believe in you, Christ Jesus. I pray that people who are in that place, they would fling the, fling the doors open to you. And those of us who have tried to manage that openness, who goes in and who comes out, pray that we'd fling the doors open to you. I pray that in this moment, we would feel both the gravity of the perversity of our actions, and we would feel the gravity and the weightlessness that comes from receiving the grace of your spoken forgiveness. Your word 
overcomes our words. Your life given for all of our words that did not give life but brought death. So we trust in your cross, your death and resurrection. Pray that you would take the weight of our true perversity away. And we pray, Father, that as we turn to you, you would fill us with your Holy Spirit and in union with you, you would fill us with words of life. You would give us a desire to study and know with crystal clarity the vices of mouth and to know with crystal clarity the virtues of gracious and truthful speech and to know them and to seek to practice them and to be filled with your life to express on the basis of your true beauty, virtue, and life. We pray that the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart would be pleasing in your sight, O God. In Jesus' name. Why don't you stand for the benediction?